Recovery Elevator, episode 56. This disease is a, goes by inches in taking your health away. And without your health, you know, you've, you've got nothing. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator podcast. My name is Paul. Thank you so much for joining us. According to the Recovery Elevator sobriety tracker on my phone, I've been sober for one year, six months, and five days. On today's podcast, I've got Bill. He's been sober since October 22nd, 2015, and he was at the top of his game in this esteemed position with the United States government. In previous podcast episodes, I talk about how I went to Peru in 2014 as a chaperone with my buddy who was a social studies teacher for a high school in Denver. I went back and I checked some calendar dates. I read a couple journal entries from that time, and I came up with this timeline that demonstrates the insanity of this disease called alcoholism. Saturday, March 29th, 2014, I depart for Peru telling myself that I need to be fully rested after not being able to sleep on the airplane, the overnight flight to Peru, I get a glass of wine. It's going to help me sleep. Well, I don't know about you, but after I start drinking, I can't stop. I had one glass of wine followed by about 25 more, and I continued to drink till about 30 minutes before meeting the kids, high school kids. I'm a chaperone. So I get my shit together, shall you say, and I'm sober from March 30th to April 7th, 2014. After that trip, on April 7th, when the kids departed and I was still going to stay in South America for another month and a half, I was not an alcoholic. Hell, I just made a week no alcohol. How could I possibly be an alcoholic? But looking back, while doing the Inca Trail, I didn't see too many pit stops where you could buy booze. In fact, there wasn't any. Okay, so in my new life of sobriety, April 7th was going to be my new sobriety date. Guess what happened? No joke, two hours after I said goodbye to the kids, Went to the hostel bar, I was drinking, and later that night, drunk. So, from April 8th to April 15th, definitely was an alcoholic. And then I got the whiff of a jungle tour in Bolivia. I said, yeah, that definitely is for me. So, from April 16th to April 21st, I did a five-day Amazon jungle tour in Bolivia. And all but one night, I didn't drink. So, I was not an alcoholic except for one night. But again, in the Amazon, where you basically have to paddle a boat everywhere you go, Watching out for anacondas, piranhas, pink dolphins, and caimans. There's not too many convenience stores selling six-packs. So after that trip, I was convinced I'm not an alcoholic. Oh yeah, that night I did drink. There's a photo of me trying to pet an eight-foot caiman. Way to go, Paul. Way to go. After the Amazon tour, I am in La Paz, Bolivia. Has anybody heard of the Death Road? It used to be the most dangerous highway in the world until they turned it into a tourist attraction. You rent bicycles, you go from like 14,000 feet, maybe 13,000 feet, all the way down to like 3,000 feet. And let me remind you, all gravity assisted. All you got to do is just point your bike downhill and enjoy it. Well, guess who drank the night before? All the other kids in the hostel and this guy, Paul, who when booking my bike tour was like, all right, I just spent $85 on this trip. I have to be up at 7 a.m. tomorrow morning. I'm not drinking tonight. Yeah, that promise I made to myself didn't last very long. But I did make the tour. So we're on the death road and other travelers from countries all over the world are saying things like, oh my God, this is so amazing. Paul, did you see that waterfall we just went through? Oh, is that a lemur? I just did a wheelie over a Jaguar. Oh my gosh, I can't believe this was a Pan-American highway. Hey Paul, I'll race you to the palm trees. And after every one of those comments with these kids displaying how this was the most remarkable time of their lives on their gap year and all this stuff, I would respond with like, oh yeah, yeah, cool, a toucan, look at that, that's great. But my head hurts so 
gotten bad, the whole experience was miserable. Yeah, Death Road, Bolivia, been there, done that, hated it. Then came my birthday. As I was walking through the streets of La Paz, I saw a poster with the initials G and R. From my Thundercat days, G and R is associated with Guns N' Roses. Investigated the poster more thoroughly, and sure as shit, Guns N' Roses was coming to La Paz, Bolivia to play on my birthday. And guess who did make it through sober for that? This guy, Paul. But let me tell you why. They don't serve alcohol at those giant soccer stadiums in La Paz, Bolivia, probably for great reasons. I did find people who smuggled alcohol in, and they were charging like $40 for tiny shooters of Jack Daniels. So I did make a smart decision and say, nope, I'm not drinking. I'm going to enjoy this. And being sober when November rain was played, it was one of the best moments of the trip and one of my better moments in sobriety that I recall today. After leaving that concert, what better time to start my new sobriety date, I told myself. I just saw Guns N' Roses. They just played one of my favorite songs ever. In fact, my buddy Nate, in an email, after I told him I did drink shortly after that concert, he was like, man, how cool would that have been to say my sobriety date was on my birthday at a Guns N' Roses concert in Bolivia. But no, that night, the wheels came off, big time. And let me tell you firsthand, trying to stay sober night after night after night and failing night after night after day in the morning all the time, it's exhausting, completely exhausting. So on April 22nd, I made a promise to myself, that's my new sobriety date. April 23rd, I was drunk. Oh yeah, I was in Chile now. Different country, same story, whatever, don't remember it, didn't enjoy it. So April 23rd, here's Chile. Well, within about 10 minutes after dropping my backpack at the hostel, guess what I was doing? I was booking a bike tour, but guess what I did after that? I was drinking. And guess who did make that bike tour? Hungover is all hell. That was me. The difference was this bike tour was in the Atacama Desert, which is like Moab, Utah. And this one was not gravity assisted. Hot as hell and lots of hills. Not downhill, mostly uphill. Well, for me, it felt like it was all uphill. April 27th, make my way over to Argentina with every determined bone in my body to have my new sobriety date be launched in Argentina. But then walks in this beautiful gal from Ireland who insists on we rent a car and go tour the wine region. My addiction, Gary, was like, you know what, Paul? We are in Argentina. We should go explore the wine region of Argentina. So rented a car, and that's what we did. Looking back on this now, night two was pivotal in my recovery. I was getting sick and tired of the rodeo show called Alcoholism. It's exhausting. As Paul said in episode two, sick and tired of being sick and tired. And I remember one night, half drunk, that I was trying to drink. I didn't say I had a drinking problem, and I sure as hell didn't say I was an alcoholic, but I think your HP shows up when you need it the most. This girl from Ireland had just finished med school. What I know now is everybody has been affected by the disease of alcoholism. Thank goodness, Alexandra read between the lines. She started asking questions, not because she thought she was an alcoholic, but she's a doctor. She wanted to help, and I was half drunk, and I want to talk. I needed somebody to talk to. And that night, it came out. I was an alcoholic, and I finally told somebody that I wanted to quit drinking. The next day, something had changed. The cat was out of the bag. I'm extremely allergic to cats, but this cat was welcoming. I wasn't hiding the biggest secret I've held my entire life. The conversations we had in the car while driving to the next winery were more in-depth. I'd like to say I stayed sober from that moment on, but I didn't. And you might be thinking, well, how did this girl who's a doctor let you drink? Well, she's a wise one. 
She also knew, because she has family members who are alcoholics, that it's up to them to make that decision. Fast forward to mid-June when I got a random postcard in the mail from this girl, Alejandra. And I'm actually going to read it because the last line is very powerful. Dear Paul, I'm on my 23-hour bus to Buenos Aires, and I thought I'd write you a note. It was great meeting you, and I'm glad I went with my gut instinct, and we went on our spontaneous road trip to the wine region of Argentina. I had a lot of fun. I think you're a lovely and genuine guy. Side note, I didn't insert that. She really wrote that. <laughs> and then there's like a really cute map of the road trip, but at the bottom, there's an asterisk and a special note. Thanks for a great few days, and I hope you keep your promise to yourself. Love, Alex. Promise to myself, I gotta quit drinking. Here's the magical part of the accountability that I didn't even know I was creating. The decision to open up and tell somebody that I was an alcoholic in the wine region of Argentina, that decision was still paying dividends in June. I got a postcard, and guess what? That day, I don't know if I was drunk or been drinking, but that summer, I drank a lot. But getting that postcard reminded me of the promise that I made to her and myself. I got to quit drinking. May 5th, I've got a five-day hangout in Lima, Peru before I fly back to America. During those five days, I'm starting to surrender, shall we say. I'm so sick and tired of waking up every day and fighting that fight. I went to a couple AA meetings, and they are hard to find in Spanish-speaking countries, even in large metropolitan cities like Lima. On May 11th, I fly back home to Colorado, stay at my parents' house for a couple days, and I go to Lake Powell for a houseboat trip with the family before I go back to Montana. I'm sober for five days at home, and then the first day on the houseboat when it's just my mom, my dad, and myself before my family and a couple friends arrive the, the next day, well, life happens. It doesn't happen to me, but life happened. We had a family member pass away. So as the sun is dipping behind the lovely red rocks at Lake Powell, Utah, I thought that is a great excuse to start drinking. Hell, I had a death in the family. So goodbye, little amount of sobriety time, I'm now drinking. And what happened in the next five days, I would wake up around 5 to 5.30 so I could feed my dog Ben and my parents two dogs, and I would drink by myself in the mornings. I think one morning it was like 4.45 to 6.45, I just drank by myself. Here's the crazy part, they had no idea. In fact, day four on the trip, we were at a marina filling up for gas. And my friend Ron, who is a normal drinker, let me say, looked at me drinking my cherry Pepsi and was like, man, I think it's so cool that you can do a trip like this sober. I looked at him and was like, yeah, Ron, yeah. So the HP accountability train made another stop looking back. These were pivotal moments in my recovery. Told my parents one morning before 6 a.m. or 7 a.m., just walked into the room, they're sleeping. I'm like, hey, mom, dad, I'm drunk, I'm an alcoholic, let's talk. Same thing happened with my brother that later that day in the boat. I was like, hey, Mark, you know I don't drink, but uh, hey, it's a big deal. I can't stop drinking, and I'm probably an alcoholic. Will you still be my brother? His answer was yes. Why I ever thought he would say no, I don't know. Probably due to the stigma thinking that all of our friends, family, and loved ones will leave us once we find out we're not normal drinkers. So I make it back home to Montana, and I continue to drink the rest of the summer. Till September 7, 2014, when I quit. So let's recap this traveling experience. Two years ago, I was a part of my life where I had an off-season. Wow, that would be great now. Imagine being 30 years old, not a poor college student, being able to take off two months of time and go travel the world. Do the Inca Trail for free as a chaperone? This should have been one of the best experiences of my life. And according to all the people I traveled with, their Facebook posts, it was the best experience of their lives. But in reality, it was tough. Sure, there were some cool moments, but it was brutal. It was exhausting. Looking back on it, 
it's actually dangerous. I put myself in situations that I'm lucky to make it out of. Going down the death road, hungover as hell, is not safe. Being blacked out in La Paz, Bolivia, walking home, trying to find your hostel, not being able to find your hostel, booking another hostel, yeah, that happened. That's not safe. Hell, I did two 14-hour bus rides over the Andes. Snow-capped peaks everywhere. If you were to say, hey, Paul, you've been in the Andes. How were they? I'd be like, I don't know. I was on a bus, hungover, passed out. Oh, and I threw up on myself twice. Even when I was gazing out the window, enjoying the snow-capped 20-plus thousand feet peaks, there was inner mental warfare going on. I had an addiction trying to convince myself, lying to me in my own voice, that I wasn't an alcoholic. I was trying to think of brilliant ways that I could return to being a normal drinker. Oh, yeah. I was also obsessed with alcohol. I couldn't quite live with the fact that I had to give it up forever. To summarize, the trip was brutal. Sure, the sun was shining at moments, but staying sober or trying to get sober in that environment, it's not conducive at all. In fact, like I said, looking back, it's dangerous. Now, one of the best trips I have ever taken was with Nate, who I interviewed in episode 3, 4, 5, and 6. We went to El Salvador in 2011. Yeah, I was a dry drunk, but I was sober. My buddy Nate, also sober. We went to El Salvador. We literally threw a dart on the map and a dart landed on El Salvador. Why the hell we went? It's because the dart landed on the map. It was like this official rule. Wherever the dart landed, we had to go to that country. No joke. Spring break. We went to El Salvador against all government warnings and regulations. That's where we went. Ended up being one of the best trips I've ever been on. Why? Well, it wasn't exhausting. It was definitely to the fact that I was traveling with another alcoholic and like-minded individual. There was nothing to hide. I would like to say when you're sober, you don't make irrational decisions. However, we did hitchhike in El Salvador. Yes. But being sober in that moment, I guess, I'd like to say if things did go askew, we would be able to react quicker. Sorry, mom, if you're listening. So in the recent year and a half of sobriety, I've actually declined to go on some trips. I've got some friends that have rented VRBOs in really cool ski towns close to where I live. It's not that I don't think I can successfully make it through a weekend where people are drinking. It's that I don't want to put myself in those situations. In fact, I did do a similar South America trip in 2015. I went to Peru as a chaperone and I was sober. But the closest I have ever been to a relapse in the last year and a half in five days was on my birthday in Argentina when the person I was with and the waiter, they didn't quite get it that I wasn't drinking. They're like, hey, it's your birthday. You at least got to have a Corona. And for a split second, my addiction, Gary, was like, dude, Paul, they're right. But I made it through. And when I was having breakfast with my mentor about a month ago, a light bulb went off. I was talking to him about the Peru trip and how awesome it was going to be. And then he started talking about an under 30 CEO trip that he went. It was basically young professionals who went on a trip to Costa Rica and the light bulb went off. It was a pen flipping moment at 723 in the morning AM where I was like, Pete, that's it. Sober travel and recovery elevator. It's going to happen. Yes. Sober travel. I'm in the process right now of securing itineraries with wholesale travel operators. So what's going to happen. Imagine a 10-day Costa Rica trip with other like-minded individuals, other alcoholics, where you have nothing to hide. I've seen firsthand this disease is communal. It's not going to take a 10-day Costa Rica trip to develop bonds and lasting relationships. They're going to happen on day one. Now, this is not get sober travel. It's sober travel. And I cannot wait to launch this program. So before I get to our interviewee, let's hear from our sponsor, Go Figure Sober Travel. In the spring of 2014, I went through the most exhausting trip of my life. 
What should have been an incredible South American backpacking trip turned into a nightmare because I relapsed and then I couldn't get sober. Let me tell you, being hungover on a 12-hour bus ride over the Andes is miserable. I knew I needed other sober people to travel with, and that's exactly what's going to happen. Wait for it. RE Sober Travel. Now I can travel to Europe, Asia, Australia, USA, and other amazing places with other sober travelers. I can expand my recovery network without risking my sobriety. For information on upcoming travel itineraries to places like Costa Rica, Mexico, Europe, and more, text sober travel no space to 44222. Again, text sober travel without a space to 44222. And now let's hear from Bill. Bill, how are you? I'm just great, Paul. Fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us, Bill. First off, how long have you been sober? Well, this last time, since the 22nd of uh, September, my recovery elevator says that's uh, four and a half months. First off, congratulations on 4.5 months. That's incredible. Tell us more about this last time. Was this the second time you tried to get sober? Third, fourth, fifth, multiple attempts? Tell me more. What does this time mean? This is the fourth. And uh, this time it was brought upon. I'm, I'm, I'm basically retired, but I still have a part-time job just a few hours a week. But it does require that I continue to hold the security clearance I've had for 40 years with the uh, government. And prior to this last one, I went to a self-help outpatient uh, about a three-month. I, I, I knew I needed some help, and uh, it, was, it was very nice, some one-on-one, some group therapy. And, but I had to record that. Uh, on my security investigation when it came up for the next five years. As a result of a follow-up to that and uh, an interview with a psychiatrist, uh, I just decided that, hey, I'm, I'm going to stop now and we're going to see if we can't make this permanent. Bill, there's already so much I want to touch up on. But first off, let's get a little bit of background about you. Give listeners, maybe tell listeners where you're from, what you do for a living, how old are you, are you married? Do you have kids, and what do you like to do for fun? Okay, well, I'm I'm 68. Grew up in a small town uh, near Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. M- married my high school sweetheart. We're 47 years now. I retired. Wow, from congratulations! A, yeah, I'm retired from a government intelligence agency. I retired after 35 years, and then I went on to work for a contractor who does contracts for that government agency. But since 2009, I've pretty much been uh, retired, retired with just uh, about four hours a week that I go down there. I like to uh, golf. And uh, two years ago, I uh, took up fly fishing, which uh, there's a lot of good fly fishing uh, streams in this uh, area of the country. Okay. Have you ever seen the movie A River Runs Through It? Oh, yes, I've got it. It's wonderful. Okay. You know where that was filmed? Was it near you? It's about 15 miles away from where I live right now. It takes place in Missoula. However, the majority of it was filmed right around Bozeman, Montana. One of my favorite movies ever. Bill, I would like to continue this conversation in person. So you got to come out here and fly fish in Bozeman, Montana. What do you say about that? Really? I'd love to do that, Paul. I have to get a kitchen pass, though. That's (laughs) the only thing. Uh, So, But I'd really like to do that, Paul. Wow, you there's a lot of wisdom I'd like to hear from you. You've been 40 something years of marriage, you still got to get a kitchen pass. How did you do that? That's a whole nother podcast episode. Yeah. Let's talk about the podcast title, Recovery Elevator. 
Talk to me about your elevator. Was it 4.5 months ago that you hit a bottom? Or when we talked before this, you said in 2010 is when you first tried to quit drinking. Talk to me about your bottom. When did you finally realize you're like, okay, this has got to stop? Well, actually, Paul, you know, my elevator was more like an escalator. Okay. (laughs) It was a slow descent. As a matter of fact, Paul, I you were born in 82. I can remember being at a hotel in Hawaii, my only visit to Hawaii, wondering about, geez, did I have too much to drink today or on this vacation? Was that in 1982? Please tell me yeah. it was a good year. Yes. That's when you were born, right? Yeah. Yeah. I heard it was a cool year. I just don't remember much about it. There was a hurricane in Hawaii. There are very few that hit Hawaii, but uh, we managed to pick it. But but anyway, you know, one one of the things I had picked up on was, you know, if you think you might be an alcoholic, you might be an alcoholic, right? So, but I, so I had worried about my heavy drinking. I drank alone, you know, I drank after work at golf outings and bowling and social events. I, I was a, a normal drinker who, who really never got drunk. I, I think I can say that, but, but, but it was a different story when I got home and had, uh, you know, four Manhattans. And so, so back to, to what happened, though, uh, I needed actually both my hips replaced for severe, from severe arthritis. And the way they do that, if it's arthritis, they don't want to do them both at the same time if they don't have to. But so I had the, uh, the first one done in 2010, the second one done a year later. And uh, running, up to, running up to that date, I had had uh, a series of blood tests and I was referred to an internist because my liver functions were elevated. Well, I've had elevated liver functions since 1972, you know, and that's one of the things that worried me, you know, because uh, I thought, well, gee whiz, you know, someday I'm going to get cirrhosis. And uh, so sure enough, they did a biopsy on my liver back in 2010, running up to this uh, surgery, and they found what uh, they describe now as the early onset of uh, cirrhosis of the liver. And so my doctor said, you have to stop drinking. And the problem was, I thought, oh, my God, you know, this is a life sentence. How am I going to get through the rest of my life without having another drink? And that was the big obstacle for me. And uh, I said, well, is there, um, you know, is there a way I to have any, you know, what would you suggest? And uh, he said, and he kind of disappointed me because he said, well, I'm, you know, I'm the doctor. I provide the diagnosis. You know, there's there are things out there, but I don't, I don't know which one to tell you, which I thought was kind of strange. Yeah. But, but anyway, I, uh, my brother is a recovering alcoholic. He's, uh, I just spoke to him, you know, at the Super Bowl. we have a Super Bowl party and he's 17 or 18 years and he's been very good. He was the first person I told about this and he took me to an AA meeting. And of course, like you and, and so many of your guests say that meeting uh, pretty much convinced me that uh, you know I I wasn't an alcoholic you know I just had to I just had to cut back. Oh, so, isn't that funny? Uh, yeah, there was a person there, and and they do this, and it's a wonderful part of of AA. They celebrate anniversaries. Here was a gentleman about my age who was celebrating his with his family celebrating his fortieth year of sobriety, and. I mean, you talk about being, even for, for most alcoholics, I mean, that is pretty irrelevant. I mean, here I've been dr- drinking for the past 40 years. This guy probably doesn't even remember what maybe he does. 
Bill, at, at that ago. time, it sounds like you were celebrating, or not celebrating, but you were experiencing nearly 40 years of elevated liver values. Yeah, exactly. And the other thing I found, Paul, at, well, is that, you know, and one doctor told me, and you latch on to every positive thing you hear, and he said, well, if you if you cut back, uh, your liberal functions will uh, will drop back, you know, and 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 actually they do. They uh, they may not go down. It depends on how long you 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 can stay away from the drink. But uh, so I, I I've had a lot of liver tests. I've got into the habit, or I used to, of you know I'll just stop for a week or two and. Uh, you know, the doctor won't yell at me, which is, you know, I, I was just fooling myself. You know, I mean, that was the real problem. Bill, there are so many things that you said there that we could touch up upon for the next three hours. But three things I want to chat about. First thing is fear will not get you sober. The second thing is the doctor basically didn't have an answer. All he had was a diagnosis. And the third thing is terminal uniqueness. But first off, let's talk about the fear component. The doctor basically said, you have already got the first stages of early liver cirrhosis, and we know what happens there. You die with liver cirrhosis. So tell me about that, because we all know, well, now you probably know, that fear does not get you sober. It got you sober for, what, a week, maybe two weeks? Am I correct on that? Okay. Well, now the first time was I made it because I had my liver surgery scheduled like August. Uh, I got through... So I want to say it was almost... I got to almost the holidays, so almost four months... I got through, but it, I felt like I was, you know, I, I had in the back of my mind, well, if my liver functions go back to normal, in which they did, they went back to very normal, you know, then maybe I can just, you know, have a mini here and there. And I, I kind of tried to rationalize, although this damage was permanent in terms of it's not reversible, you know, I have a liver, you know, I can kind of manage it myself. So uh, that initial fear, you know, gets you gets you only so far. You know, like my one doctor said, uh, and I, when I stopped, and I, that's another thing, I stopped smoking. My, my doctor had said, you know, you stop the smoking, you stop the drinking, you cut out the caffeine, you live another 15 years. And I said, yeah, but for what? <laughs> so he kind of laughed. And that, I just had the wrong mindset and I was... It was more of I fooled a lot of people, but you know you can't fool yourself. And and the other thing you mentioned inches. This disease is a, goes by inches in taking your health away. And without your health, you know you've you've got nothing. I was in a pretty bad place. That, it didn't stop me completely. No, and I rescind my previous statement that uh, saying that fear will not get you sober. I correct that saying fear will get you sober. For only a short period of time, I you agree. have to get sober for yourself and fear won't keep you sober. And the next thing I want to touch up on is the doctor didn't have an answer. I read a stat a previous podcast episode ago, maybe two, three, four, five episodes ago, that I think there are like 150 some odd medical schools in the United States of America and only 14 of them have classes on addiction. Oh, I take that back. Not classes one class on addiction. It's this whole realm that doctors, they have no idea how to deal with this. In fact, I'm scheduled in, in late February to talk to a group of doctors in Bozeman. I don't have a doctor's degree or medical degree, but I do know more about the subject than they do because they never learned about it. What was that feeling like in that, in that meeting room with the doctor when you're like, okay, Mr. Smart Man with all that education, what do I do now? Well, yeah, I mean, it really took me back. It, it really took it back. And my, 
my GP doctor, who I finally, uh, because it's hard to get doctors up here, they stopped taking patients, a lot of them, and uh, I finally, but, and my brother went to uh, to this same doctor for a while, and luckily he was able to move and get a new one, but uh, she told me she, she could prescribe, uh, she could prescribe antabuse, and uh, I thought, what, <laughs> what is that all about? That's a shortcut, uh, Bill. That's what that is. It's a shortcut oh, for a couple God. weeks. Yeah, yeah. It it did surprise me. But now uh, I knew my brother would know. My brother, you know, got me a list of the AA motions. And, and um, in my uh, outpatient, when I took the outpatient, you know, uh, I had the, um, they had folks from Alcoholics Anonymous come in and talk to us about their stories. And of course, that, that didn't help me much. Back to your question, uh, something as serious as, as that, uh, doctors, he should have handed me a list of of the AA trip right right there. You know, I shouldn't yeah, have no had kidding. to seek that out myself. Bill, you're lucky you had a loved one who had a lot of sobriety under his belt, your brother. Myself, when I had my oh shit moment of like, God, I am an alcoholic, and it appears to me I'm the only one within a 400-mile radius that's an alcoholic. I had I didn't know where to go. And again, I went to my first AA meeting. It brings up the third thing that I want to touch up on is the terminal uniqueness. Basically, that's a fancy two words put together for listen to the similarities and not the differences. And what that means is your first AA meeting, you deduced, you're a smart man, you were in the government intelligence agency, you said, look, I'm not an alcoholic. I did the same thing after hearing the dialogue in an AA meeting my smart brain, which I like to think is smart, I said, Paul, you are not an alcoholic. Two days later, I drank. And basically, the terminal uniqueness thing is this. Look, that guy has red shoes on. I have white shoes on. Therefore, I am not an alcoholic. We try to find every difference possible to convince ourselves we're not an alcoholic. Yeah. Tell me about that with you, Bill. Yeah, and and really, I mean that, and that was one of the big things that resonated with me right off the bat when I started uh, listening to your podcast. Is the you know we are so we were just looking for the differences. I mean, we we let the similarities go right past us. My brother and I know you've said this too. And my uh, you know I asked my brother, you know, why do you get why do you drink? And he says, I drink to get drunk. Well, that's you know. I never drank to get drunk. In the weekends with my wife, I would drink too much and, and lose some control. But I drank to get comfortable, uh, to cl you know, clear my mind. <laughs> sure. So all these, you know, this clearly I couldn't be an alcoholic. But but you do you you look you do after a while you listen to some of these stories and you know you you listen about you know cutting back you listen to about you know starting after five or ten or whenever and and hey you know that's me hey I switch hey I I wouldn't I wouldn't go to the same liquor store you had you had and people were saying this and I say hey well wait a minute <laughs> that's me and they're alcoholics oh gee maybe I better rethink this. Bill, after doing 55 plus interviews with alcoholics, I've had about four to five pen flipping moments mid-interview. In fact, one of them I didn't edit it out. You can hear the pen bounce on the table. It's where I'm listening to the interviewees. And it only happened after like 10 or 15 interviews. I sit back in my chair. I flip my pen. And I'm like, oh my God, we are all the same. 
all of our stories, there, there are slight differences, of course. So your brother drank to get drunk and you didn't drink to get drunk, but we're still alcoholics. My pen flips. I'm like, man, we are all the same. Like, why did I make this so hard on myself? Right? Yes. It, it, it's incredible. And, and, and Bill, you touched earlier upon your drinking habits and I'm curious on this. Talk to me about, did you ever put rules in place you know, when they said, look, your liver values are going up. Um, did you ever put rules into place like, I'm not drinking before 5 p.m.? How did you control it? And did those plans ever work? Well, the answer is yes, I uh, I really did. And and I can't remember how far back, you know, I tried to do that. Because I, uh, you know, I drank every every evening, you know, and a little more on weekends. And it wasn't a whole bottle of booze, but I needed that drink. And somebody said on the radio, I guess, or some doctor talking, and said, well, you know, you might try and see if you can go <laughs> a day or two without drinking. And, I, you know, and I tried that. And it was <laughs> it was really tough. And uh, so, yeah, my big thing was to uh, try to, uh, on the weekends, not drink before 10 in the morning. How about that? Uh, <laughs> but it, set, but set then, the bar high, Bill. Yeah. But, then, but again, you know. I would like drink to get that edge, you know, and that for me, that only took, you know, a, a drink or so. But but over the years, you know, I built up a tolerance, you know, and I truly believe that, uh, you know, I was quite functional and able to, in my own mind, I wouldn't drive drunk. I'm sure I drove many miles with the blood alcohol over the, the limit now, that especially that it's, it's pretty low. But I never felt, and in all my you know, all my 40 some years, I, I haven't had a DUI, which is lots of alcoholics say that. But I mean, I never even ran off into a ditch, you know, so, I mean, so I, I do believe I built up a ton. But the problem is your your liver processes all that liquor. I mean, you your mind might be able to uh, to get used to it, but but your liver still chunks away. And over time, it takes its toll on your liver. Bill, you mentioned perhaps you drove over the limit, over the legal limit, now that the legal limit is so low. I'm, I'm sure in 1982, it was around a point two or something like that. But I watched the Super Bowl last night, of course, and go Broncos. I'm a big fan. Today is a good day. Last night was a good night. However, during the Super Bowl, there was a commercial from Budweiser. I'm not sure if you saw it. And, it, and I forget the hashtag, but it basically it was this woman she and, and the ironic part is she actually never takes a sip of the beer that she's promoting, which I found ironic. But I think they missed the mark because basically there was no way to misinterpret this. It was saying if you drink and drive, if they were to do a biopsy on the brain, they would find that you are a complete idiot. You're going to win the Darwinism Award and things like that. And I honestly, I was pissed after that commercial. And Bill, I want to be clear, drinking and driving is very wrong. I am ashamed of the times that I have been drunk driving. I'm like you. I've never flown into a ditch drunk, but I got a DUI in 2014. I have driven drunk many times. There is more of a gray area here. It's not black and white. It's not you drive drunk and you're an idiot or you're the dumbest person on the planet, which I took from that commercial. They did forget to mention the fact that they are selling an extremely volatile product that 10 to 12% of the population become addicted to. Tell me about that. Did you see that commercial last night? 
Geez, honestly, Paul, I, I, I didn't. I, I, saw, I saw a number of them. Uh, we, again, we, we hosted the family party. This was tough for me because my wife and I were married on January the 11th, 1969. January 11th, January 12th, 1969, the Jets, uh, you know, beat the, the Colts, was it, in the Super Bowl. And we were in New York City on our honeymoon, and we just heard the exuberation, the joy, and everything. So, it, so our our Super Bowl memories go way back to then, Super Bowl three. And our family has hosted since Super Bowl five or six. So we've had a family get together. All my family were were drinkers. I come from a big family, big Catholic family. You know, yesterday was the first Super Bowl that I didn't have. You know, any anything to drink. And of course, my brother hadn't uh, had anything to drink for, for years. But uh, that in, in regards to, to that particular commercial, I wish I had seen it. And I would have been upset too, because it, again, it's, everybody is different. And I'm, and I'm convinced that, you know, over the years, I built up a tolerance and I never, I never felt like I could not control the car. I, I felt in control, or I, or I wouldn't drive. I didn't let, and I knew that if I got a DUI, uh, that would be my career because uh, I'd lose my security clearance. So, yeah, I'm, uh, I think somebody kind of, kind of oversimplified it uh, that time, Paul. Let me ask you a couple questions, and this is a good segue in the next topic I want to chat with you about. Does the government give anybody security clearance? No, no, and the reason. You know, what, which would disqualify you or have your clearance revoked is if you do something illegal, okay, or you do something that uh, would put you in a compromising position, you know, where uh, a, a representative from a foreign government would, uh, you know, get you drunk and uh, seduce you maybe and get some secrets out of you. I've never been uh, fortunate enough to have anything like that happen, but... Uh, <laughs> But that's that's what they worry. They worry about you get drunk, you, you tell secrets, and they worry about performance. And one of the things that I got ups, upset about with this particular, you know, looking into why I got some outpatient counseling on alcohol abuse, you know, they ask you, one section says, have you ever been ordered to do that? And the next session, have you ever volunteered on your, on your own? And I filled it out truthfully. And, and had I not, you know, well, there'd been no, no questions. So... And there is, a matter of fact, uh, where I work, there there is an AA uh, club. I mean, they, there's a group that met at uh, where I worked for 35 years. But the, again, the concern is that, uh, well, you've stopped drinking, uh, assumed. If, uh, I think they may allow you, maybe one, I don't know this for sure, Paul, if you, if you get uh, charged with a DUI, they, they may give you, uh, you know, one, one chance to go into recovery and demonstrate that you're, you're recovery and working towards it. But security clearance, you, uh, you have to, you have to meet certain uh, criteria, uh, you know, because they don't want, they don't want secrets going out the door. Okay, Bill, let me touch up on that. To meet the criteria to work for the government intelligence agency, do, is it basically you need to be able to keep a secret? Do they tell you just this hot piece of information? And they're like, Bill, if you can keep this secret for a week, you're in. Or, do you maybe need to pass a series of tests and you might need to be intelligent yourself? No, oh no, 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 it's not that way, uh, Paul. You go through a background in, uh, investigation and that, and also it's very thorough the first time, which for me was back in 1967. But then uh, 
depending on what your job is, you know, you, you classified information is revealed and, and you take, um, as the, other thing, the other big thing is you take a polygraph and basically you're asked in the polygraph, you know, have you ever knowingly, you know, disclosed any s- secret information? So that's where they, that's where they check up on it in the, in the polygraph. And, the, and again, this is done every, you know, roughly five years for everyone who holds uh, a top secret clearance. So it's, uh, it, it all depends on what specific area you're working in. And some, some areas, the secrets are more closely held. The ones that you might imagine would affect, uh, you know, human life and things like that, that uh, they, they place a lot more scrutiny on. And you may have to take a polygraph, uh, you, know, you know, more often than every five years. But, but they, they screen you with a polygraph, basically, to, to make sure you can <laughs> keep it secret. Damn it, Bill, you're being modest. What I'm getting at here is you are a very intelligent person. Am I correct on that? Yeah, we chatted a little bit before the conversation, (laughs) and they don't let anybody into the the government intelligence agency. You're very bright, and you were at the top of your game. And the point I'm trying to make here is you, you said that there probably were times where you drove over the legal limit and never got a DUI. But uh, my rational thinking after that Budweiser commercial would say, wait, wait a second, Bill. You, according to the commercial I saw last night on the Super Bowl, you know, in between the routing that the Denver Broncos put on the Carolina Panthers, you're, you're an idiot. But that's not the case, Bill. I'm not an idiot. And many of us who drink and drive, we're so far from being idiots. Alcoholism, it affects everybody equally. It doesn't matter if you have an IQ of 0.5 or an IQ of 125. I don't know what the top is there, but you get the point. Tell me more about that. Yeah, it, it's more, uh, you know, in my case, how you how you were brought up. I mean, I was brought up in a Catholic family where, you know, every everybody drank. Uh, Paul, I had uh, nine uncles and uh, uh, and I had six sisters from the same, you know, same grandmother. All of them drank. And to our knowledge, only one of my uncles was was known to be an alcoholic. So. You just fall into uh, a pattern of drinking, in, in my case. Uh, and, you know, you talk about intelligence, as, as I'm sure you know, uh, the professional community has probably more of an issue with uh, well, drugs, especially because of access, but, but alcohol, too. There are a lot of uh, alcoholic doctors and, and nurses out there. And, uh, you know, they should know if it, if it was intelligence, they should know that, uh, hey, you just, you just don't drink. But the trap of the disease is, is such that you think you're actually doing yourself good, but, <laughs> but you're, again, being lied to, uh, what's that, in your own words, that everything is fine. And uh, regardless of your IQ, everyone is susceptible to that. The trap of the addiction, the disease, I love it. And before we get to the rapid fire round, Bill, I want to chat with you about your relationships. Before the interview, we were talking a little bit, and you said you were really good at hiding it. Nobody had any idea, and I myself was really good at hiding it. But you said your wife was really the only one that knew how bad it got. And talk to me about your relationship with your wife before, you know, when you were drinking and where it's at now. Yeah, and and you'll and when we answer, get to the rapid fire round here, you'll see that my wife is with my worst worst memories. But because I did my drinking uh, alone and and with my wife, that that suffered because one, I was alone. You know, I wasn't with her. That'd be and that's another thing that comes out in your podcast. This is a selfish uh, disease. 
and you know, in in a way, my my relationship with I have two sons who have two sons each. So, and uh, one, by the way, dr- drinks, and the other one doesn't drink. But so, whatever that is worth. But I actually I got into um, to uh, scouting with uh, one of I guess my younger son. It was funny because in part it was because I felt you know I needed to give him the extra time that I could be denying him because I was being selfish in, in my own, you know, my own drinking. But at work, you know, again, I, because Mondays, <laughs> I was a runner for a while, Paul, also, and uh, I wouldn't <laughs> run Mondays, but, uh, but my... Uh, <laughs> that was before the hip surgeries, right? Yeah, that's, ex- yeah, that's exactly right. And uh, also, and uh, sometime we'll get into this later, I'm also a two-time cancer survivor. So, I mean, it, I had a lot of things out there. I managed to get get through life, and I think most most anybody who knows me, just like this psychiatrist said when he looked at my record, he says we went all through your records. We couldn't find a bad word, you know, a negative word about you, anything about. And it's because I think I did a, a pretty good job. But it, but I mean, it was a, at some personal cost, and and definitely some cost to to my wife, who probably got neglected the most out of all this. Bill, great answer. And we have reached the rapid fire round. If you could answer these questions within 30 to 60 seconds, that'd be great. Bill, are you ready? Yes, go ahead. Number one, Bill, what was your worst memory from drinking? Okay, it has to be, unfortunately, one time when I got into an argument with my wife in the evening, I, I pushed her down, you know, I got, uh, you know, physically abusive with her. It wasn't that serious, but uh, I just felt so bad after it happened uh, and to this day. And of course, she does too. Bill, next question. When did you have that oh shit moment where you're like, all right, I can't control this? In all these years, there there actually been several of them. But I think the the thing that surprised me was I, I, once, uh, I once looked up a recipe for uh, making a frittata, some type of an egg uh, Thing that you, uh, it's a pretty complicated recipe, and you put it in the oven, and and it it came out it came out great, and I couldn't remember where the recipe came from. I, I all I remember is taking it out of the oven, so I had a blackout there. That was kind of the, well, certainly one of the moments where I said, "Holy crap! What the you you've uh, you probably got a problem here, William." Wow. Blackout mid frittata schmata cooking. I've never even heard of that, but it sounds delicious. <laughs> Next up, Bill, what's your favorite resource in recovery? I, I know that we're on this show here, but really it's the, uh, it's the podcast. And I was able to binge on it. Luckily, the timing was right because I was able to go back to earlier podcasts when I started this in August. During my travel, I was able to play, play them all through. So and it just kept reinforcing, getting me through those, those tough days. And now, you know, I like the accountability group now, although I don't contribute hardly at all. And I, I feel bad about that. But but I, I do get a lot of uh, encouragement from the, the wonderful people who post on there. And, and on the book, you know, I'm going through Alan Carr's uh, Easy Way to Control Alcohol. And being an engineer, he, he puts he makes an argument. It's a, he's not aligned with double uh, A. Uh, he's got one or two, uh, I think, disputes, not disputes, but he, he looks at things a little differently, but pretty much they're on the same line. And uh, being an engineer and listening to his arguments has really, really helped me. I'm writing this down. What's it? Alan Cars? Say it one more Alan time. Alan Cars, 
easy way to control alcohol. He did easy way to control, uh, to stop smoking years ago. Also in, in uh, back in 89, I stopped smoking, you know, and, and to me, the stopping smoking and stopping, uh, uh, quitting drinking or uh, have a lot of parallels. Uh, Alan Carr, and he, there's somebody, and actually I got it from, somebody mentioned that on, uh, on Facebook in the accountability group. But I would uh, certainly in, encourage uh, you folks to listen to it. He, he makes a, a very nice argument. Listeners, there will be a link to that in the recoveryelevator.com under podcast, under the show notes. This, I think, will be episode 53 or 54. You can find a link to that book. And real quick, Bill, when you said uh, the easy way to control drinking or control alcohol, you remember that book series that's like, uh, you know, iPhone for dummies or like tying your shoes for dummies. They're all yellow yeah, and they're in yeah. Barnes & Noble. No joke. I went there in 2009, 2010. I'm just like, where is the I Can't Stop Drinking for Dummies book? I, I, I couldn't find it. I, no joke. I look for it. Next question, Bill. In regards to sobriety, what's the best advice you've ever received? Well, you know, in, in my, my, my outpatient clinic, we had some one-on-ones and we had some group. And uh, I must say, I didn't get a whole lot out of, out of them. But one thing that, yeah, you know, and people may take this for granted. But uh, just like in smoking, I would get these urges and, and pangs. And there, as a matter of fact, yesterday during when we had the, uh, the Super Bowl, there was a point where, because I was responsible for getting, uh, you know, food uh, and refreshments ready and things like that. And, uh, and I, uh, I felt this thing coming up in my chest, uh, you know, where, boy, geez, this is, I'd really like to have a drink. But what, I, what, what this uh, person had told me uh, was, you'll, you'll get these urges, they will pass. You know, you think at the time, well, this is it. You know, I'm just, I'm just going to blow up. But, but no, you, uh, and it, it, it may be a couple of minutes, uh, and maybe, maybe a little longer. But, but just knowing that you're going to get these, and you can get through them, and then you'll get these fewer and fewer as time goes on. So and that'll help you. So I, I, that, that I think was was one thing. And and the other thing I read, Eleanor Roosevelt, she has this quote that basically says, yesterday's history and tomorrow's uh, a mystery, but today is a gift. And that's why they call it the present and living in the present. I recall that. So that, Being that's in been the my- moment. I love it, Bill. And last question, what parting piece of guidance can you give to listeners who are in early recovery or thinking about getting sober? Biggest thing that's helped me this time and and what I would really throw out there is uh, if you're thinking about quitting and you're having your doubts, stopping drinking is not a sentence. You know, I looked at it as going to, you know, prison. How am I going to spend the rest of my life? But in fact, if you give give into it and give it a chance, the uh, doesn't take long for the physical side to where the alcohol gets out of your system pretty quick. It's the mind that is, is a little tougher component to deal with. But I wake up, you know, I'm not tired when I wake up. I look forward to the day. It's a better life that for the rest of your life that you can look forward to. And you just will be surprised uh, why you didn't start it sooner because, uh, your life is so much better. You you realized you you didn't need that drink or a couple of drinks every day. Bill, great answers. And before we depart, 
give listeners your own personalized you might be an alcoholic if line. And I'm going to go first with you. You might be an alcoholic if your name is Bill. No joke. This could be a coincidence. I think you're like the fourth or fifth Bill I've interviewed. And every other person I meet in AA, it seems like their name is Bill. Probably just a coincidence, but <laughs> it's my experience. All right. What's your own personalized you might be an alcoholic if line? Okay, I'm going to start this off with uh, y'all should get screened for colon cancer when you get to 50. Colon cancer kills and it shouldn't kill anybody. But because of that, every three years I have to take a colonoscopy. And I've been doing this since, you know, for 20 years. When you take a clear liquid diet, you can, because to clean yourself out, you might be an alcoholic if the doctor says, you are on a clear liquid diet, so you switch from whiskey to gin for that evening. Oh, I love it, and I knew it was going there. I love it so much. Bill, thank you so much for joining us. This gentleman, you're on top of your game, even in retirement. You only work four hours a week. You definitely read Tim Ferriss's four-hour work week. I love it. Thank you so much for helping me stay sober today, Bill. Have a great day. Well, thank you and all your listeners. You've been a really great help to me. You might be an alcoholic if, thank you to Megan for compiling these on a weekly basis. You might be an alcoholic if you are at Circle K at 6.01 a.m. telling the clerk to open up the beer cooler. Thank you, Jamie. This one's from Maggie. You might be an alcoholic if you go to brunch with your friends and notice they have a glass of wine with each other and you're like, huh, who does that? Well, I do. This one's from Christine. You might be an alcoholic if you almost buy a bra that you could fill with wine liquor to take on your cruise. I love it. This one's from Megan. You might be an alcoholic if you can't walk past a wine bar without feeling sad and nostalgic, especially if Third Eye Blind's playing, Megan. So recovery elevator. We took the elevator down. We got to take the stairs back up. We can do this.